want you to find your way to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. If you're new, we haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name is Rob, one of the pastors here. It's, it's great to have you part of, of Doxa today. But guys, here's, here's where we're at, okay? As we're kind of doing the work of the famous Christmas carol, all right, Joy to the World, where you remember the, the words of that song that says, let every heart prepare him room. We're spending the, a few weeks leading up to Christmas, specifically in chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew's Gospel, looking at the very first Christmas and ultimately preparing our hearts to celebrate. And as you get to Matthew chapter 2, okay, let me just say this. Guys, during the Christmas season, all right, we're ultimately celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ who, as we talked about last week, is, is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And I, and I just want, this is the prayer, and this is the hope, is that, you know, we can get lost in the shuffle of, of Christmas, but my prayer and, and hope for this Christmas season is that as we open up the Bible together, that worship would be the result. And the way that we're doing that is by simply looking at the Scriptures, looking at all that surrounds the birth of Jesus, asking God to just really just expand our perspective, expand our understanding of what it means to have this very first Christmas. But Christmas, guys, is where the eternal God broke into humanity. It's where the God who created everything entered into his creation. It's where the God who made man came down as a man, starting as a baby. All right, this is Christmas. This is ultimately Jesus, and today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the historical events that, are, that occurred right after the birth of Jesus. And as we get into this, guys, here's what I believe is going to happen today. All right, here's what you need to know. We're going to find ourselves in this story. Every single one of us, we're going to find ourselves in this historical account. That you need to know that this is a book that we don't just read, but it's a book that reads us. And there are times when we're in the Bible and we're reading the Word of God and we're confronted with the words of God, we're hearing the words of God, that the Bible it becomes a mirror. And we simply see ourselves. We simply see ourselves in relation to who God is and we see ourselves truly for who we are. The Bible becomes a mirror. And I believe that this is exactly what is going to happen today as we look at the events following the birth of Jesus. Okay, so we're just going to get right into this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And here's how it starts. Now, after Jesus was born, okay, and I'm going to stop right there just for a second because because as we talk about Jesus being born, theologically, this is where we get into the doctrine of incarnation, that when we celebrate Christmas, it's really ultimately all about the incarnation of Jesus, that if you strip away all the hustle and bustle, all the trees, the cookies, the extra weight that comes with those cookies, if you strip all of that away, guys, what remains is just a humble birth story with a simultaneously stunning reality. The incarnation of the eternal Son of God. And the incarnation, if you're you're newer to the Bible, you're newer to the church, newer to Christianity, maybe you haven't heard that word or you don't know what that word means, but incarnation literally refers to the infleshing of God. That as we read the Bible, the nature of God is progressively revealed to us throughout the pages, showing us that we have a triune God, meaning we have one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, this is the the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is progressively revealed to us throughout the pages of the Bible. And Christmas, doxa, with the incarnation, is all about how the eternal God, the second member of the Trinity, put on flesh and blood and became fully human in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who is both fully God and fully man. And so in the incarnation, 
We have the eternal Son of God without ceasing being God, taking on human nature. And I want you to hear me in this, okay? This is not God doing this just to kind of give like a, a divine flex, all right? This is not like a sideshow that he had just to be like, look what I can do, all right? This is not him doing that at all. But the reason that God became a man is based on what we looked at last week in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. If you have your Bible open, you can look backwards to Matthew 1, 21. But this is why God became a man. It's to save us, to save us from our sin. He had to do it. And so as we consider Christmas, guys, Christmas, the incarnation, it's all about the gospel. That without the incarnation, there is no salvation. And this is what the gospel is all about, that every single person in this world, no matter how good and godly and religious you think you are or you think you know of people, every single person in this world is in the place of needing salvation from the death sentence that hangs over every single one of our lives because of sin. That everyone is broken. And again, even if you're newer to church, you you look at your life experience, you feel the pain that you feel, you look at the brokenness of the world, we live in a broken world, and this is why death happens. This is why you experience pain and abuse and tears flow. Guys, it's, it's broken, and the Bible just simply calls this sin. And sin is just anything that God is not. And the very nature of sin is that it separates. It separates us from God, and it separates us from each other. And the separation, guys, because of sin, I want you to understand this. This is, if you want to understand what Christianity is all about, it's this. The separation that exists because of sin, if it's not mediated in this life, it will continue into eternal life, resulting in the terrible reality of hell. It's just eternal separation from God. But here is why we love celebrating Christmas. Because the gift of God is the sending of the Son of God to be born, to live, to die, and to raise, to give us the thing that we most ultimately need. You might think you need more money, you might think you need a better spouse or better kids, a spouse, something, right? You might think you need so many things. The one thing that we all need above everything is forgiveness of sin. This is the salvation of God through Jesus. And this is why Jesus came. And this is what Christmas and the incarnation is all about. All right, so go back with me to Matthew chapter 2. We have Jesus being born. It's, it's the second member of the Trinity stepping into creation. This is the incarnation. And now we're just going to read this whole section. All right, and see what we learn about the man Jesus and about this day that we're preparing to celebrate and how this is going to affect us as we leave this place. So verse 1 again. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. 
And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that had seen that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, chances are, if you grew up in or around the church, you've been to a Christmas Eve service or something like that, you've heard this basic story of the birth of Jesus. And I want you to know that, guys, we can so quickly, easily just read this and just say, wow, that's a, that's a great historical account without understanding that below the surface are massive theological implications for all of us. But as we get into this, I want to just kind of walk through this and show you some things, okay? So after Jesus is born, we see this kind of crazy story unfold. And it begins, if you look back, with some wise men. Or, or magi, as they're called, searching for Jesus. And the truth is, guys, we don't know a ton about who these guys are, who these magi are, all right? Because this is the only time in the Bible where we find them, all right? But we, we know of them, and the, the songs that we sing around them with Christmas, you know that, like We Three Kings, right? Great, catchy song. I need you to understand, it's just not a biblical song, okay? So you can still sing it, but just understand that you're not singing the truth of God, okay? So we don't know if there were three of them. All we know is that there are three gifts, and so maybe it was two, and one guy brought an extra gift. Maybe there was four, and there was a cheap guy that just forgot a gift or didn't bring a gift. Like, there could have been 30. We don't actually know how many magi were there. But what we do know is that they're following the star. And some historians, they'll, they'll say that these magi were following the star for weeks or months, traveling upwards of 800 miles to track down Jesus. But they're following the star because they believe that it was leading them to a king. And here's what you need to know, okay? The magi, when it says the wise men, it's not that they were really smart and, and wise, but they were students of the stars. All right, they were ancient experts in astrology. And the magi, they were very intelligent men. They were very, like, educated men, very well-respected men. And we know that they're actually not Jewish because they're coming from another nation. But these men, they were considered very, very spiritual very religious and spiritual men. And we learn about this. If you were around uh, last year as we went through the book of Daniel, we learned about men like this from the book of Daniel. And it's likely that these, these magi were influenced by Jewish teachings in the Old Testament, and through their study of the stars, being astrologers, they were drawn on this mission because as they looked up the stars and they saw things that were happening, a, an Old Testament prophecy from a man named Balaam in Numbers 24 popped in their heads as they're looking at the stars and it said that there would be a star that would signify the coming of a king. That's ultimately from God. And so these men, they have Balaam's words and the prophecy of God in the background. They're looking up at the star and they decide, we got to go. And they take this journey to Jerusalem looking for Jesus. They get there and they find out that he's actually born in Bethlehem. And as Jesus is born in Bethlehem, if you look back, here's what I want us to consider, okay? Guys, through this account, we see three responses to Jesus on this first Christmas. And here is where it becomes like a mere moment for us, okay? These three responses that we see to Jesus being born, these are not just historical responses that have somehow morphed and changed, but these are actually the three responses that every single human in the world has today towards Jesus. 
And so we're going to relate to somebody in this story. But the first response, I want to look at these responses. The first response we see is through the historical king named Herod. All right, that if you look back to verse 2, when the Magi arrived in Jerusalem, they're looking for this prophesied king. And what they do is they come before the ruler of Judea, a king named Herod, and they just show up and they ask him, they say, hey, where is the one who is the king of the Jews? Now again, guys, we, we need to pause when we read the Bible because this is just like one of those things you need to understand how crazy this is, how radical this would be. All right, the, the Magi, they weren't just wise men, they were really gutsy guys. Because when you come into the palace of a king and you kind of say, hey, where is the real king? This is going to tick off the guy that's sitting on the throne. And this is exactly what happens with Herod. That if you look at verse 3, it says that Herod was troubled. And I want you to know that this is a massive understatement. Because here is what we know about the historical man and king named Herod. Herod is both a king and a killer. And although he was the sitting king, he was not the born king that we know from history that Herod really just declared himself to be the king of the Jews. He raised himself up to that position and his nomination was ultimately accepted by the Roman government at the time. And we know historically that Herod was just an unusually violent man. Like an extremely violent man. History records that Herod killed many, many people. Even many family members. All right, in order to ensure that he had absolute power as king. And so when Herod hears this report that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, has been born in Bethlehem, he wants to find him. And he doesn't want to just find him so he can show up and say, hey, good to meet you, I want to worship you along with the wise men, right? No, he wants to kill him. And what we're seeing through Herod, hear this, is rejection of Jesus. The first response to Jesus is rejection. That if you look down to verse 16, In his rejection of Jesus, Herod actually tries to kill him. But since he doesn't know exactly what child it is, what he does is he just issues a decree throughout the whole land that every child under the age of two in Bethlehem would be killed. And again, guys, I mention this all the time. Guys, this is not just a spiritual book. This is a historical book. And as we look at secular history along with biblical history, we know, guys, that this happened just like it said here in Matthew chapter 2. That in this time, children were literally ripped out of their mother's arms and they were killed right before their eyes. And Jesus would have fell victim to this genocidal cleansing except Joseph and Mary and Jesus, they, they flee to Egypt because God warned them of a dream. But I want you to see this, guys. Herod rejected Jesus. And this is likely the posture of some of you here today. And if that's you, let me just say this. I'm not mad at that. It wasn't that long ago that I was in that place. I love that you're here. It's my honor, one of my highest honors to teach you the Bible. And God's desire for you because of his love for you is that you could start there, but you wouldn't stay there. But maybe you're rejecting Jesus right now. That's sure, you're, you're here and you're in church, but you're not in Christ meaning that you haven't come to Jesus in faith. I need you to just understand, that is rejection. 
It's not just kind of like a benign decision. It's absolute rejection. But here's the big question. And as I was thinking about this this week, and I was looking at the, the people that Herod, and just considering people rejecting Jesus, here's the question I ask. Why do people reject Jesus? Have you thought about that? I mean, I was talking to a guy at the gym this week. Um, the way it always goes to the gym is we get buddy-buddy, and then they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh, okay. You're right in the song. It's 50-50 on if I'm going to get a friend or an enemy at that point. But, uh, um, but I'm talking to this guy. I tell him I'm a pastor. We start talking about Jesus, and then he eventually says, hey, I'm just not interested in any of that. Don't believe any of it, but, you know, will you spot me, okay? <laughs> and I was like, you know, why? Like, why? I started to think, like, why do people? And I, and I started to think of all types of reasons why people reject Jesus. And I'm like, well, man, there's the intellectual argument. I'm like, I'm not, I went to public school. I'm not that smart, but I'm not that dumb either. Like, I still believe. Like, maybe there's, right? And there's so many different reasons why people can reject Jesus. But then in the midst of me kind of coming up with all my thoughts, I remember the words of Jesus. Take a look at this. John chapter 3. Here's what Jesus says. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Okay, so Jesus is, is called the light of the world, and he comes into the world through the incarnation. And here's what happens. Here's the rejection. Lights come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. This is what Jesus says as to why people reject him. And I, I want to look at this and consider this, and if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is describing you right now as you sit in your seat. And it's not for the sake of condemnation and making you feel bad. It's for the sake of salvation to make you feel joy that I want to share this with you. But we can sum up what we just read about the type of person that rejects Jesus in five steps. If you look, just keep this up here on the screen. But first, John 3 says that their works and our works are evil. Meaning, what we think, what we feel, what we do, all that stuff, it's just evil. It's, it's sinful. Second, Jesus says that they don't want those things to be exposed. So the things that we're thinking, the things that we're feeling, the things that we're doing, my whole life of evil, all of my sin and my past, my present, my future, all of it, I don't want that to be exposed. And so Jesus says, first there's evil, and then there's the fear and the desire that it not be exposed. Therefore, number three, they love darkness. That darkness feels safe because we can hide in the dark. And if you look at the middle of verse 20, it says people love the darkness rather than the light. That they love it. And so we say, I, I love you, Darkness. You make me feel safe. You make me feel hidden. You make me feel protected. I, I love you. And therefore, fourth, look back at verse 20, they hate the light. And the reality is you have to at that point. Right? All that stuff, all that evil and sin in our lives, it's just going to look so horrible if someone shines a light on it that I can't stand the thought of being exposed. And so I just keep loving the dark and I keep push, pushing away the light. And so fifth, verse 20 they don't come to Jesus. They don't come to the light. So Jesus gives us five steps 
I'm doing evil stuff inside and outside. I'm evil. I don't want to be exposed. Therefore, I love darkness. Therefore, I hate light. Therefore, I'm not coming. I'm not believing. And believing and coming in John's gospel are the same thing. And so this is Jesus' explanation of unbelief and rejection. Are you there today? Like, is this you? Is this like why you reject Jesus right now? And maybe for some of you, you're, you're here and you know there's stuff wrong in your life. And you, and you know there's sin in your life. There's, there's darkness, there's wickedness. But you just don't want to come to terms with it. Or maybe you're thinking about all that stuff right now and you don't want to change or maybe you don't even know how to change. And so the easiest thing for you to do is just to reject Jesus and just keep him out of your life. And what, you're, what you're doing when you do that is you're trying to do what Herod did. Just to get rid of Jesus, forget about him altogether. Because it's easier to not show up here and be confronted with what's broken in my life. I just want to hide in the darkness, away from Jesus. And guys, if that's you, ultimately, I just want to tell you this. Rejection of Jesus is rooted in pride. And if you're mad at me for saying that, you're probably more proud than most. But every single one of us, guys, we are so prideful as people. Every one of us. Some of us to a heightened degree, but we all struggle with pride. That we want to be just like Herod. We want to be the proverbial king of our entire life. We want to be in charge. We want to do what we want to do. We, want to, we don't want to be told what to do. We want to decide what is good and bad. We want to decide what is true and false, right and wrong. We want to be the God of our own lives. where We're deciding everything. That's Herod. Rejecting Jesus. And I want to tell you, if that's you today, it might not seem like that big of a deal, but I want to show you why this is actually a massive deal, and I want to actually warn you today. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. There's some moments in the Bible where we actually have to pause and be like, what does that mean? I don't know if this is one of them. But I want you to understand that Jesus loves you so much. Even in your rejection right now, if that's you. And he was born for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose for you to give you salvation through faith. But please understand me on this. Jesus will honor your rejection of him. He's not going to force you into a relationship with him. And I have this conversation with guys all the time. And people will say, I can't love and I can't follow and I can't worship a God who would send people to hell. I need you to understand that God doesn't send anyone to hell. We take ourselves there by rejecting Jesus. Jesus will honor your rejection. And rejection in this life will lead to separation for eternal life, which is just the terrible reality of hell. And so for your joy, if you're there, for your joy, for your eternal life, because you can't afford to reject Jesus, you can't. You need to come to Jesus. Now the second response to Jesus that we see is not just rejection, but it's actually indifference. 
All right, look back. As, as these wise men come looking for the king, no one knows what they're talking about, right? They're like, where is the king of the Jews? They're like, I really don't know, you know? And then, and then if you look at verse 4, the scholars, the chief priests, the scribes, they're all brought together. And these people are, are very religious people. They're, make their, they're making their living kind of studying the Scriptures and teaching the Scriptures, the, the Bible, the Word of God. And in verse 4, if you look, after the Magi come asking where the king of the Jews is, Herod, he calls these, these scholars together and the question is asked, where is Jesus going to be born? And knowing their Bible, knowing the Scriptures, they go right to Micah 5.2. And if you are here last week, we talked about this, right? But they know exactly where Jesus is going to be born. Because it was prophesied some 700 years before that moment that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so these religious leaders are like, oh yeah, it's right here in the scriptures. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, just six miles down the road. You can go over there this afternoon if you want. Now here's what's interesting. Guys, as we look at these religious leaders, we're reminded that mere knowledge of the scriptures is not enough. And here's what I mean by that. You can know the verse but miss the point. Do you get that? And those of you who you grew up in church, you, ha- you have Christian parents, Christian grandparents, a bunch of Christian friends, you're, you're very familiar with the church, you're very familiar with the Bible, you're very familiar with Jesus, I want you to know that you're ex- especially susceptible to this and vulnerable to this. But you can memorize a passage and miss the message. There's a lot of people that know a lot about Jesus that don't actually are not with Jesus. And these Bible scholars, they knew that Jesus, the King of the Jews, would be born in Bethlehem. But check this out. They didn't even seem to care. I mean, guys, we have no indication that they had any desire to go see Jesus. These religious people were just indifferent to him. They knew the prophecy in Micah 5.2. They were only six miles away from Bethlehem, but they didn't even care enough to take the trek and pack a snack to go see Jesus and worship Him. This is what religion does to people. It takes our eyes off Jesus and puts it on ourselves and all the other things that are just noise in our... We don't want you to get wrapped up in religion. We want you to get wrapped up in redemption, which is through the man Jesus. How many of you would fall into this group? How many of you would fall here? Maybe you just don't really care, right? I mean, you're here. It's your family tradition. It's just what you do. Your wife drug you here, whatever. But your life and your thoughts and your passions are anchored and centered in other things. That it's not so much about Jesus, but what's really important, guys, it's your job. It's your bank account. It's your social life. It's your pursuit of a, of a marriage. It's your friend group. Because there are so many things that can be part of your life, and maybe that's part of your life right now, that are so important that you're just indifferent to Jesus. And maybe you've even done the whole church thing for a while. And you know some of the traditions, you know some of the stories, you got a cross tattoo, right? You got the Bible sitting in your room on a shelf. Like, it's all there. You look good from the outside, but you're not compelled to follow him or love him at all. You're just indifferent. See, for those people, religion and knowledge were more important than relationship. That it was all about facts to know and memorize, not someone to love and follow. And there's some of us here this morning that might fall into this camp. And guys, I don't want to be unkind, but I think this is one of the reasons 
for the increasingly empty churches all across the United States of America. Because you have people on a stage and behind a podium and a pulpit who are intelligent, religious people with a solid understanding of what the text says, but they have no personal acquaintance with he who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And therefore, since they don't have personally a knowledge of him, they're entirely unable to introduce other people to him. It's a sad thing. But I want you to know indifference to Jesus is a massive deal. Let me show you how Jesus speaks of this. Matthew chapter 7. Take a look. Jesus says, Not everyone who, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here, Jesus is talking about faith. And he tells us there's going to be some like fake Christians that show up in the church. And these people, they, they know all the right stuff. They know the Christianese. They know the God talk. They can quote a few Bible verses. They even have some amazingly outward things that are part of their life. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying that saving faith is not a result of saying the right things. You understand that? It's not that you just know a few of the right things and can quote back a verse. You can't piggyback off the faith of your parents. It's you and Jesus. And Jesus is saying it's not just about saying the right things, but it's actually believing the right things specifically around Jesus. That it's not an indifferent association, but a genuine love that results in us being redeemed by God and following Jesus and His words, works, and ways. And so guys, if you find yourself there today, if you're in this place of just indifference, you're hearing me talk and you're saying, yeah, that's totally me. Maybe you're saying, that, that's me, I don't know what to do, but that's definitely me. Maybe it's this right now. Maybe it's you just sitting in your seat with a genuine heart, talking to God. That's prayer. And maybe you, in your seat right now, you just pray and you just ask God to help you see how wonderful and powerful and amazing and loving Jesus actually is. Maybe it's you in your seat right now just asking God to open up your eyes so you can see the real Jesus. To throw off everything else, asking him to help you to worship him and to follow him. Guys, this is a prayer that God would love to answer. Amen? This is absolutely a prayer that God would love to answer. And so we see the rejection of Jesus. We see indifference towards Jesus. And lastly, the third response we see to Jesus is this. It's worship. Look back at the Magi in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And again, we read the Bible and you're like, oh yeah, these, these Magi, they just fall down and worship Jesus. That, that makes sense. Does it? I mean, just think about this. Here are the Magi. They finish their long journey, upwards of 800 miles. They get to Jesus. They find a baby. And they fall down on their knees and begin worshiping this baby. That in this moment, we have rich men worshiping a poor baby. We have men from another nation worshiping Jesus who is Jewish. 
We have spiritual men, very respected spiritual men who have stopped just being spiritual and they have focused all of their worship and all of their attention on Jesus Christ. And as they do this, guys, I need you to understand that Jesus has not done any miracles yet. He has not preached any sermons. He has not yet died on a cross. He has not yet rose from the dead. He's just a baby. And these men, these grown men, they come to baby Jesus and they fall down and they worship Him. It's bizarre. But somehow by faith, these magi see who He is and why He has come. And it's most likely that these are the first converts in the whole Bible. That these are the first worshipers of Jesus among humanity. The pagan magi. And guys, this is the right response to Jesus, particularly today, for those of you who become Christians today or for those of you who are Christians. It's to worship Him. Worship Him. Now look back at verse 12. So they fall and they're worshiping Jesus Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And these are interesting gifts, right? No? You got these wrapped underneath your presents or the tree, right? Chances are, guys, none of these are wrapped and put under your trees for your kids, right? These are just strange. But they're so interesting, and it tells us a lot about Jesus. But I want to just consider this, okay? Guys, you give gold to kings. It's the most precious metal It's of great value. It's extravagant. And in giving Jesus gold, the Magi are saying, Jesus, you're king. You're king over Herod. You're actually king of kings. It's all about you. And they give him the gift of gold to show his kingly nature as the king of kings. Look back, the second gift. All right, frankincense. All right, if you're not familiar with frankincense, it's kind of like an incense. All right, the incense, like, think like, this is what they did in the, the temple before like head shops existed and covered up the smell of marijuana, right? They would just light this, and they, you guys know what that, right? But this is incense. And what they would do in the temple is that the priests would, would light the incense as they were making sacrifices to cover the smell. And the temple at the time, guys, was the most holy place on earth. It was the connecting point between heaven and earth. It's where the presence of God dwelled. And it's where sinners would come to be in the presence of God and have their sins atoned for, which was done by the priest. But this is all foreshadowing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Hebrews actually talks about this. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is our great high priest, that He is the temple. He's the place where heaven and earth kind of interlocked and connect. And He alone is worthy of worship. And He stands as the mediator between us and God. This is the man Jesus Christ. This is why God had to become a man. Do you see this? Jesus had to step into human history, fully God, fully man, to mediate between us and God, our sin and His holiness. And this is all shown in frankincense. And then the third gift is probably the most curious of them all. It's myrrh. But do you know what myrrh was used for? It was for dead bodies. Kind of strange, right? I mean, how many of you parents, right? Here you go, little Danny. Here's a bottle of embalming fluid, right? It's like, okay, whatever. A weird gift. But myrrh is used in the preparation for the burial of a dead body. Why would they bring that to a baby? Listen. Listen. It shows us that Jesus is in fact our King. 
Jesus is, in fact, our priest, but Jesus is also our substitute. He's our sacrifice. That the way that Jesus would be our Savior is through his death in our place for our sins, that the wages of sin is death. And so the options are either we die or he dies. But someone has to die. And Jesus raises his hand and said, I'll do it. And he comes. And he lives without sin. He dies in our place for our sins. And he pays through his death on the cross. He pays our debt of death. And if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that after they kill him on the cross, his body is removed from the cross, and then his body is prepared for burial, and the Bible says that he was wrapped with spices and linens, myrrh. Do you see how this is foreshadowing the death of Jesus Christ? That the reason that Jesus was born is he came to die, and he did that for you. This is the gospel. This is Christmas. And so let me wrap up with this. Two things about the first Christmas. Number one, because it's all centered on Jesus. The whole storyline of human history is focused on Jesus. Mary is connected to Jesus. Joseph is connected to Jesus. The Magi are connected to Jesus. The Old Testament prophecies for thousands of years are connected to Jesus And everything on this very first Christmas comes into focus and the spotlight in heaven just kind of shines down on this baby and says, here he is. Here is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world, and the spotlight is on him so that no one would miss him. And he came in that way so that you would not miss him. And for you and I to really enjoy Christmas biblically, Jesus has to stay at the center. Or we're doing something totally different. Number two, on that first Christmas, gifts were given. All right, and I know that there's some of you in here, you'll, you'll reject everything Christmas. You're like, it's pagan, all this stuff. And you're like, I'm not giving gifts. Gifts were given at the first Christmas, okay? The Magi give gifts to Jesus, just as you and I are going to give gifts and bring gifts to others next weekend. But hear me on this. It's Jesus that comes to give the greatest gift. See, next weekend... You're going to give someone a gift, and they're going to give you a gift, and it's all going to be following in the example of the Magi and Jesus. That the Magi gave Jesus a gift, and then Jesus was going to give them the gift that is better than any gift, the gift of him going to the cross and dying in their place for their sin. This is the greatest gift that any of us could receive. Guys, Jesus was born to die, and he did that for you. Do you understand this? Does that move you? Does that do anything? Does that stir some like wonder and some awe and some praise and some worship in you? Like, as you think about that, Christian, or have you become so indifferent and so numb to that stark reality as you wake up every morning and you realize, oh my gosh, I'm going to heaven. Sin doesn't have the last word. Jesus does. Does it stir some worship in you? This is Christmas. He gave everything. And I have good news of great joy for every single one of us. Jesus Christ, this Christmas season, he wants to have a gift exchange with you. He wants you to come and to gift him all of your sin, and he wants to gift you all of his righteousness. The great reformer Martin Luther, he called this the great exchange. That on the cross, as Jesus died in our place, he did so for our sin. And on the cross, 
Jesus, he offers with his arms open anyone who would come to him. The broken, the lonely, the outcast, the sinful, the wicked, the wretched, the the perverted, the whatever, the addicted. Anybody can come to Jesus as he's on that cross with his arms wide open. It's an invitation. He says, come to me, give me all your sin, and I'm going to give you all of my righteousness. This is the gospel. God gives himself to us on Christmas. And this is the only way to take hold of the life and the eternity and the love that God desires for every single one of us. And I love this about Jesus, guys. And this is why we get so excited about Jesus. This is why we sing about Jesus. This is why we teach about Jesus. This is why we pray to Jesus. This is why everything is ultimately always about Jesus. Is because He is the answer. He is the way. He is the truth. And He is the life. And Christmas shows us this. And so Christian... I hope you're excited this Christmas. And not because of anything that you're going to get from a human, but because of what you've gotten from your God, the man Jesus Christ. And I hope and I pray that as you're reminded of the gospel, that you would reflect on the gospel and that you would leave here with your burdens lightened and your joy elevated. And you would leave this place singing and rejoicing exceedingly with great joy, just like the Magi. Because Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with you. Will you remember the great gift of incarnation to bring about salvation in your life? And let that well up in joy. And if you're here and you've not come to Jesus, guys, my my hope and prayer is that you would have more clarity of who Jesus actually is, what he has actually done for you, and that this Christmas you would come to Jesus and then you would rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And if you're here and you're trying to figure this all out and you're, you're in this place of like, man, okay, like this is intense, like maybe I do need Jesus, don't look around and be like, what do I have to do to fit in here? We don't want you to get wrapped up in religion. We want you to get wrapped up in the life of Jesus. And so it's not about you looking to the people to your left and your right. Well, they have their hands up. I guess I'll raise my hand. Am I doing it right? It's not about you going and being like, I got to stop smoking. I got to stop drinking. This is not about you doing that. It's about you just humbling yourself before the foot of the cross and saying, Jesus, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. And you just lay your sin down. You lay your pride down. You lie your life down. And you come to Jesus and let him save you. This is what you can receive this Christmas. And I would urge you, not to leave this place today without coming to Jesus. Guys, this is Christmas. And we're going to continue worshiping Jesus and we're going to sing some songs, but the way that we're going to do this is we're also going to take communion. And so during these last two songs, we got communion stations set up here in the corners of the room. And so whenever you're ready, come and, and celebrate communion. And communion is something that Jesus gave us to remember his gospel. That as we take the bread, we remember how Jesus was in fact born, how he lived, and as he died, he was literally ripped apart for our sin. And we take that bread and we just look at it and we feel it and we just say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. And then you dip it in that juice and the juice is symbolic of the blood of Jesus that was spilled for you, that by, your, by his stripes you have been made healed. Made, you're healed And you take that bread, you dip it, and you just say, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. And you remember him, and you honor him, 
and you rejoice exceedingly with great joy. You have so much in Jesus, Christian. Would you pause and reflect on that? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, like, you can just let this opportunity pass you. It doesn't make sense for you to do this. But if you're here and you're like, okay, hey, I get it. There's a God and I'm not him. Jesus, you have salvation, I have sin. Let's do this exchange. And I'm in and I'll follow you for the rest of your life. You, you pray that prayer, you become a child of God and you sprint over to that communion table and you rejoice and you sing because the gospel has saved you and changed everything for eternity for you in this very moment. So I'm just gonna give you all just a minute in your seat to get to work with Jesus. And maybe, Christian, you just need to sit and you just need to think and you just need to thank him. Maybe there's sin that you just need to throw off and bring to Jesus and then just thank him that it's not held against you and just say, Jesus, thank you, thank you. If you're here and you need to come to Jesus, you do that right now and just come to him.